This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And uh, we are here to uh, discuss the cinema with you once again. Um, what's up, Danielle? How's the weather up there? Weather's been beautiful. It is Spring is perfect. It's like rainy when it needs to be rainy. And then it's like a nice mist comes over. In that humidity as the temperature rises, and then it's just clear blue skies. Um, it's truly gorgeous out here, and I've been sitting outside a lot yeah. because um, I hate the world. So I yes. just sit out there and zone out a little bit and work out there, and it makes me feel better for the day. Um, but what about you? How are you doing? I'm good. It's so hot right now that I'm beginning to regret moving back to Georgia. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm I was here. I moved here in the dead of summer last year. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if I was just like working off of pure adrenaline or something, but I, I somehow f- figured out how to be in August in Georgia, and then now I'm like, ugh, it's too hot. It's too hot, and it's only June, so you you're not, you're not even looking forward. Yeah, we gotta we gotta get to July fourth because then it's like from oh. there it just gets miserable but i um i did do something i was i was proactive this time because i was like i want to fucking swim in a pool and where do i do that you bought a pool no i didn't buy (laughs) i wish i got a pool what okay what if can you imagine as a renter just putting in an in-ground pool in a rental would that be so fucking funny? Oh, God. Especially since it's like, it's only been a week since we recorded and we talk every day. So it'd be great if you were like, P.S., I put in a pool, just didn't tell you that. <laughs> I know. And it's like, because when I was, you know, when we were both living in L.A., right, it's like a lot of people rent almost their entire adult lives. So, yeah. you know, I have had friends that have done a lot of construction on their rentals, right? Right. Like, redone the floors and you know put in lighting and all that stuff and i was always like wow that's kind of insane but hey if you're gonna rent forever and you have rent control why not make your space look nice as long as your landlord is fucking chill with it right but putting in a pool i think is like (laughs) the next level um and would be extremely expensive as a renter to put it in a pool in your in your rental but i would I feel love like if, if you put in a pool as a renter i feel like you're officially declaring squatters rights <laughs> I know you like oh i am now. never leaving this house i hate to break it to you no i would be so happy if i had a pool in my backyard but i i just joined the y i just joined yes. the y the one that's near my house has an indoor and an outdoor pool. Ooh, nice. And it's 
incredible. Especially if you go like during the day, like during the week, it's like true grandma hours. There's like nobody there except for the occasional like water aerobics grandma. Yeah. And it's definitely my vibe. Like I'm like, I love it. We know that you are all about a silver sneakers time frame. <laughs> I was like, I deserve to be here. I am <laughs> I'm old enough to be here. But that, Squatters rights. Squatters rights at the fucking silver sneakers. And you're exactly. like, I'm just here now and you're going to deal with it. So exactly. I love that you joined the Y. Well, and I want to talk to you, speaking of aging, okay, I don't know if we've ever talked about this before. It has been front of mind for me for a while. Um, but I, But sort of like, we've talked about our aging bodies and weird, you know, gray hairs and discomforts and pains and aches, that kind of stuff. But I actually think that, like, I don't know about you, um, as I've gotten older, I think I've begun to say fuck it about a lot of things when it comes to, I don't know, just sort of like body stuff, Mm -hmm. you know? And part of that is age, uh, for sure. And I was just wondering whether or not you've had an experience or maybe an enlightenment when it comes to your body as you've gotten older. You know, I kind of have. And I think that the the realization that I've had is that nobody cares. So what I mean by that is the stress and pressure that I put on myself because I'm not the size I used to be or when I was when I was a teenager and a malnourished adult for you know most of my 20s I was very slim and then when I started being able to eat and realized that I have always hated exercise my body changed and it doesn't look terrible and but I, and I don't feel terrible the only time I really think about my body now for myself is kind of how do I feel day to day? Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, do I want to feel stronger or do I want to feel better in some way? Like, do I want to change how I'm eating so I have more energy? Like, from a very scientific point of view, it was how I treat my body. My whole attitude towards my body changed when I realized nobody cares about this as much as I do. Like, I'm not yeah. living, I'm, I'm just not willing to live up to someone else's arbitrary standards anymore. Right. And... You know, you can feel, I think it's been a lot of, a lot of positivity has come out of like the, you know, the body positivity movement. Um, Sometimes it's a little oppressive where it's like, love yourself no matter what. And you're like, but am I allowed to feel bad about something? (laughs) Because I kind of feel bad about this today. And is that okay? But I think what I take from that is I try to take the positive messages from that movement. And I think that it's been really revolutionary for me to see so many different types of people at different points in their life. Um, just being comfortable with their bodies, especially women who are aging. And that's weird to say, because we're all aging, right? But I mean, like people who are in our age group. Mm -hmm. So women who are in their 40s, 50s, 60s above, who are just like, yeah, I I feel fine. I don't care. I'm wearing whatever I want. and I'm doing whatever I want. I think that's really been kind of revolutionary. And I'm really happy that it like happened in our lifetime. And when I think about like, well, how do I apply that to myself? That's the kind of shift I made is like, nobody cares. So just focus on how you feel. Yeah. No, that's great. That's that's great to hear. Because I feel like it's so strange because I remember when I was, well, first of all, to give you a little bit, bit of background about myself, I have always been, in Danielle's words, a big bitch, 
always <laughs> like there might have been like the first year and a half where I was like a, a baby. But then, yeah, I was uh, I was always like a bigger girl all through my entire life. I mean, God bless my mom. But, you know, she put me on like every fucking diet you can imagine. I was like in Weight Watchers when I was 12 years old, you know, and that was the way people did it back then. <laughs> yo, and like especially in the 80s with like the Jane Fonda workout and eating fucking grapefruits and cottage cheese and shit. I have fucking tried it all. Trust me, I've tried it mm-hmm. all. I've been there. I've, you know, been on so many little kid diets. It's unbelievable. Um, and the funny thing is, is that I... I don't really even know what my vibe was about my body. I think I just completely ignored it. I think I was mostly concerned about since I played a lot of sports, I wanted to be strong and Mm -hmm. I never really like would look at my body and be like, wow, I'm like totally not what the culture wants me to be. Um, And so uh, in childhood, it was sort of like, yeah, there's a weird moment where you're like, why the fuck am I 12 and sitting in a Weight Watchers meeting with women in their 40s or whatever? Um, It does, you know, at some point it did click that that was kind of strange. But for the most part, I was totally fine with the way that I looked. It wasn't until, of course, boys come into the picture and all of a sudden... Not just me, but I think a lot of women that I was friends with and just the people around me suddenly kind of, there's a lot that hinged on that. Mm -hmm. And that became the sort of metric, unfortunately, for the way that myself, but then my friends were kind of feeling about themselves and their bodies, which is kind of fucking weird, you know? And I think we're trying to unpack all that stuff now. Absolutely. And that's a weird moment, too, because like we are trying to unpack it, but I'm also seeing younger generations just flat out resist it. And I love yeah. that. Where they're like, we're not judging ourselves by your weird heteropatriarchal standards. And I love to- that. Oh, totally. It's very inspiring. And I always think about that. I'm like, God damn, I wish I had that when I was like in middle school and high school. I wish I had that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I had to take the hard road, which was that I just had to like, earn that confidence in some other way. And I was always told, I think, in my 20s and 30s, I always had older friends, um, and they were always telling me, man, once you hit 40, something happens. Like, I think that it kind of goes back to that conversation that we had when we talked about Kathy Bates and the yeah. um, the six feet under thing, where there was that episode where um, basically the Kathy Bates character and the mom character from... Um, six feet under decide to start like shoplifting because they are like we're middle-aged women we're invisible no one no one cares about us no one sees us anymore mm-hmm. and um how that's depressing maybe on the outside but then there's there's some kind of like weird liberation that's kind of t- tucked yeah. in there and i was always told that that's the that's the vibe is that like suddenly no one cares about you like in the culture you are no longer this like young fertile you know flower so you just get pushed off to the graveyard or whatever it is you know and uh I'm and, immediately remembering that scene in ab fab and absolutely fabulous where they're walking yeah. in the graveyard and patsy just falls in the grave it's like that when you get yes. older like people just expect you to drop you're just falling into graves, falling into open holes. Um, but then, but yeah, I have, think I've truly been feeling 
the liberation of that in a weird way. And it's the, it's the thing where, like, I don't know. I just am like, well, fuck it. If no one gives a fuck, if no one cares but me, um, then I why should I care? I want to do whatever the fuck I want to do. And um, that's, I think, like, what was going on. So when I went to the Y, um, I have this two-piece bathing suit, okay, which... As a lifelong big bitch, you know how it is with bathing suits. It's always a shrug. And you're like, no way I'm putting a two-piece bathing suit on. Fuck that shit. You know, you're always like, give me the fucking frilly skirt bathing suit. <laughs> you know what I give mean? Me, give me a 1920s swimming costume. Like, <laughs> I want swimming leggings and a rash guard and a, f- a foot guard. Flippers, oh. full flippers. <laughs> I want a built-in sun hat <laughs> that is somehow both straw and rubber. <laughs> yeah. Can I just have like a swim barrel, just like a big <laughs> giant floating barrel that I can just jump in the pool with? Yeah. And so mm-hmm. I have had, I've had this two piece bathing suit for a while and I can't even really tell you why I bought it initially. I think it was on sale or something. I'm like, well, maybe I could rock that one day. Because the other component to this too, is not just sort of like anxiety about wearing a bathing suit just for, me and my size right but i also have this giant scar yeah going down the center of my body which has complicated things a little bit i think with my you know just like looking at a giant scar on your body right it 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 was weird i mean at first i was like okay well i'm glad i'm alive this thing is proof that i'm alive which is great but it's also like oh fuck that was horrible and also just like Mm -hmm. there's just this giant scar and you're like are people going to ask about that? Are people going to think that's weird? You know, just general anxieties about body stuff, right? right? So I was like, okay, this two-piece bathing suit is just going to sit in the closet until maybe it will reveal itself to me. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to the fucking why. I can't fa- find my other bathing suit. Fuck it. I'm putting this two-piece on. And I was like, scar is thumping. It's out there. We out here with this scar. And I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm fine. I think I, I, in fact, I actually think I might look a little cute. So who the fuck knows, right? So this makes me kind of want to cry. And I hope that's not lame (laughs) because for so many reasons, but I just remember everything you went through when you were sick. Yeah. And how, how much it took for you to heal and I'm so fucking proud of you. I'm so, fu- I'm like seriously going to cry. Like I'm so fucking proud of you because when you were, when you were sick, it was really scary. And I love that. I just love that. Let me calm down for a minute. I just really <laughs> love that. You see yourself the way that all of the rest of us see you. Like, I... Yes, there will be people who are rude enough to ask about your fucking scar. They're strangers. Yeah. But for people we who know you, like, to see that scar is such a mark of you as a survivor. And I'm so proud of you for being able to show that off. And to look cute while you're doing it. Like, I'm just really fucking proud of you 
Well, now you got me crying. (laughs) (laughs) I thank you for saying that. I mean, I. Yeah, I mean, I think it's. It's not even it's it's about us like as people with everything. Yeah. Like scars, rashes, everything like, you know, just our bodies, our human bodies that have been through so much that have been through trauma that have been through pain. Yes. You know, I think that it's, it's just, I don't know. To me, it was a long time coming for me because I feel like I spent my entire life sort of not knowing my body, but also sort of being like, well, I live in it. And so I don't have an option, but then all these other people and all these other things tell me that it's not the right body. Right. Right. But then when you go through, you know, a change, any kind of change, I mean, it can be an illness, it can be pregnancy, it can be an accident, it can be truly anything. You know, you look at yourself and you're like, now, now what? How do I feel about this? Yeah. And it was tough. I mean, the first, the first couple of years afterwards, I was like, oh, this is it. Like, I don't think I could ever be naked in front of anybody ever again because this just looks like too weird and scary. But um, I don't know. Something's happened in the past. I guess it's like the past year or so dealing with a lot of uh, alone time to think yeah. <laughs> about my, li- my fucking life. <laughs> and um, also just being like exhausted by having to just sort of like be in that moment of, um, of wondering or shame or something. I'm just like, I'm fucking tired of this, you know, yes. like I'm tired of, of um, feeling scared or hating myself. So I'm just going to fucking do it. And I, I don't know. I mean, it was a, you know, listen, it was the YMCA in Decatur, <laughs> Georgia. It's not like the pool at the Ace Hotel in Palm right. Springs. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> so um, I it was a it was a it was a gentle landing, but yes. um, I still think that I don't give a shit. Like honestly, like I'm just like I don't know. Isn't it time? Isn't it time? Aren't we all tired of the hangups and the bullshit? And like, can we just live for fucking once? And yes, like I said, I think that's why like younger people are probably listening to this, going like what like we totally don't give a shit but you and i are like we're still trying to like come off of this entire generation where i mean yeah we just like weren't able to be authentically ourselves at all times and you know and that's what that's what i see is yes there's an element of not giving a shit but what I see more than that is that you do give a shit, but it's just about yourself now. Yeah. That you're not putting that energy outward. You're just kind of turning it in. And that is what's exciting to me, is that you give a shit about yourself. And you are strong. And you you could deadlift Jimmy Khan by yourself right now. Like, <laughs> I'm very are. close, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and guess what? Not to comment on someone else's body, but Jimmy Khan has put on some pounds since we started this challenge. As we all do. Shit. As we all do. <laughs> and you can still deadlift him by your fucking self. So yeah. the fact that you have recovered 
And you are stronger physically, you are stronger mentally, you are more positive about yourself. I could not be, again, could not be happier and could not be prouder of you. Like I have in the past few years seen you really, really morph into the person you want to be and not the person that you think you should be. Yeah. And it's, if that's what comes with age, then welcome because it's fucking beautiful to see. I know. I mean, thank you for saying that. And I don't know, do you, I mean, I don't want to dwell on this too much, but sometimes I get, sometimes I don't know about you. I, there's a moment where I like look back at my youth and just go, I wish that I, there was like an invisible, my, my current self was an invisible hand that came out of a cloud in the sky and said, don't worry about literally anything that you're worrying about because in yes. 20 years, you're going to feel a transcendence about shit that you never thought is possible. Like you're just going to have yes. a complete evolution of all of this crap about fucking dating, about fucking body stuff, about sex, about fucking toxic friendships, all the shit, you know, I just wish yes. I had that. And if I, sometimes if I sit and think about that too much, I'm like sad for my yeah. former self, but I of know that that's ridiculous, <laughs> but you know, well, yeah, and also those were formative years for us to get to this point. You know, yeah. I, I wish we didn't have to have that, but it definitely is something that we've been able to turn into something beneficial for us now. Yeah. And that's beautiful because there are a lot of people that go their whole life never learning that lesson and staying in that, you know, that mode that we were in when we were younger about trying to live up to standards and try to. And here's the other thing that is because I do feel the same way about myself. I think that. My shift has been kind of the opposite, though, where I truly neglected my body and didn't care about my health. Mm -hmm. And the first step that I took to healing was my mental health. Yes. And so I'm so grateful for therapy. Um, but what that did for me, like I started to get my get confidence when I started to heal my brain. And that gave me a piece about my body because you know, I realized I don't have to ignore it just because it doesn't fit the standards. Like I can actually, you know, be, treat myself well and be strong. And, you know, I can be the same person in a body that doesn't fit into the cultural standards of beauty and still use, be, still be a confident person. Yeah. Still be a confident person. So that is, that's the shift for me is that I went from kind of like abject neglect to actually caring, but caring about it in a way that's more, oriented to how I feel instead of how I look. And yeah. so that's been huge for me. Like I I have not owned a bathing suit for like over 20 years. And people constantly, when no matter where I've lived, they're like, we're going swimming, we're going to the beach, we're going to the pool. And I always say no. <laughs> like yeah. I'm not doing that. Um, because I've never felt comfortable in bathing suits, even when my body didn't look like this and was more of the socially acceptable standard. I never felt comfortable. I don't like people looking at me um in like a half naked state. <laughs> So mm -hmm. I think that the the kind of invisibility that we have as women who are aging has been really helpful for that because I actually did buy a bathing suit and I love swimming and um, I bought a bathing suit because I'm like, I'm sick of saying no to like something I love <laughs> because yeah. I don't feel like, you know, so who cares? I'm going, no one's going to give a shit. No one's looking at me and it's great. Well, and that's the other thing too, is that I think that part of what happened with the body positivity movement or whatever is that 
it isn't this like black and white scenario where you either hide in the closet in full sweatpants uh, and not do anything, or you wear a fucking string bikini like you're in a David Lee Roth video. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like now there's just so many like different types of bathing suits. Like, I mean, there's like, you know, short sets and rash guards and all that kind of stuff. I mean, so you can dress to your level of comfort in any fucking scenario yes. at this point. And if you, you know, and again, when it comes down to it, it's that thing of like, well, as long as you feel good, it doesn't fucking matter what you do. I mean, you don't have to do anything. As long as yes. you know that it's it's not coming from a place of shame or anything, it's coming from self-love. I mean, I feel like that's just, anything yeah. applies. And I'm just, I think that at the end of the day, I like who I am now more than ever. And I, have stopped getting so caught up in the fucking bullshit of um, feeling like I need to be more different for people. And especially for, you know, the people who look like who I thought was looking. Right. You know, cause that's a yeah. really powerful uh, motivator to do good and bad stuff. And for me, it was always the thing that was like, you know, making me nervous about fucking getting into a pool or doing anything. And I'm just like, fuck it. I'm over it. And I'm just, I'm just glad to be at this point now. It just feels so much better. You know, I could truly cry again, but I think one breakdown <laughs> per Sorry. episode I is I don't want enough. you to <laughs> listen. Okay. Let me just tell you something right now. Daniel, Danielle is out here making other people cry all the time. Y'all don't know this, but I have gotten so many emails from people. Weirdly enough, I have gotten like at least a half dozen emails from straight men who have said to me, Danielle made me cry this episode. Danielle actually made me tear up this episode. So Danielle, the big joke, by the way, is that Danielle is out here making men cry, which is the fucking greatest thing in the world. So in a way... <laughs> Maybe My this brand. is a little bit of payback for that is that we've cried on this episode for the times that Hell you've yeah. made all these other people cry. <laughs> Look, the brand the brand remains strong. I like to suck people in with comedy and then make them fall apart. It's my favorite thing in the world to do. It's also what I love as a writer. Like uh, when I'm working yeah. on scripts and stuff and I'm just like, ooh, what if they say this? And then everyone in the room is like, God damn, that's, that makes me want to cry. And I'm like, yeah, that's how you know it's good. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. I'm ready. I'm ready to do a group cry right now. My coworkers. I'm ready for it. But what makes, what again, what makes me want to cry and in a good way is that, again, as someone who just absolutely adores you, I am oh. so glad and I have seen this change in you and I can feel it in you that you are finally seeing yourself the way that we have always seen you. You are beautiful. You are strong. You are smart and hilarious and just one of the most kind and generous and giving people on this planet and that you're giving even a little bit of that back to yourself and using it to make your life better is all I've ever wanted for you. <laughs> so thank you. I'm I, just inspired. I, I thank you. I uh, I want that for you too. I want that for everybody that I care about. And it's it is truly the best gift is to have, um, you know, a level 
of self-acceptance about stuff that you were you know feeling yeah. some kind of way about so i it's a work in progress not to overuse Always. that term everybody's <laughs> using that term <laughs> everybody's using it but but um, it's true it's true yeah. and it's again it's inspiring and i don't know if you feel this way but i feel like when you do reach that point which again i reached at age five where i'm like no chumps in my life at all ever Amazing. And when you do reach that point, are you noticing that it gives you more space to actually bring more goodness into your life, either from yourself or with the people that you now surround yourself with? Oh, my God. It's it's like a night and day scenario. Like the other day I was literally saying this. I was like telling a friend of mine, like the space that I used to hold for worrying about fucking dudes let's just use an example fucking dating fucking dudes that weren't worth a shit like people that i just used to you know have drama with or whatever mm -hmm. doesn't even matter if it's dudes work people friends or whatever if once i reclaimed that time i was able to fucking do shit like this like do a fucking podcast yes. like go out there and try things and be curious and like live life and not you know fucking sit around smoking cigarettes worrying about whether or not dudes were gonna fucking text me back i'm like yes. holy shit like it's a revolution babe i'm like yo <laughs> you have so much time and energy to really invest in yourself and like make make life so much better and i just am like again it, i don't want to think about it too much because i'm like uh oh, former self you were really stupid um but it is that thing where I'm like, wow, well, I used to waste a lot of time. And now I'm working towards better things. And it's it's fucking beautiful. So, uh, yeah. Don't beat yourself up too. Don't beat that past Millie up too much. Because yeah. she was also doing some shit too. And working on her mind and, you know, digging into her interests. And she was fine. Yes. But so don't beat her up too much. But I really do love that. I love where you are now. I love it. And I think that it's, again, it's just beautiful and inspiring and I think that being friends with you is part of what keeps me in that space where I'm always trying to be, you know, just focus on what's good about myself. And, and yeah. it's just, you know, it's just truly beautiful and inspiring. And, and I just love you so much. And I'm just really, really happy that you're talking about this and Aww. that we could talk about it together. Well, thanks. I appreciate your support. You're such a good friend. And I'm so glad that I have you in my life. I'm going to send you that... <laughs> I texted you the other day and the guy whose face was melting off. <laughs> That's what I feel right now. Like raw, like, ah, I know it's like <laughs> that and a picture of Bilal coming out of the toilet. <laughs> I little, let me tell our audience right now, listeners, since we had, since we put up that episode with basket case, I think Millie has sent me 75 gifts of Bilal jumping out of the basket. And I laugh every fucking time. Who was the, who was the kind soul on the internet that made all those gifts? That's all I have to say. I'm like, yo, these gifts were made. The gifts are gifts. If you know what I'm saying. Oh, it is. It makes me laugh every time. And it will until the end of time. It is. I'll be 90 years old in a fucking home and get a fucking hologram text for Millie. That's Bilal jumping out of a basket and I will cry laughing. In the vein of talking about self-acceptance and love, 
We've got a great theme this week. We do. Um, why don't you tell the people our theme? So this week we are dis- we are discussing and exploring Pride. It is Pride Month, and yes. we wanted to bring you a couple of films that we think fit really well into that you know, into the aesthetic of Pride Month and into the the messaging of Pride Month. And um, yeah, we just kind of wanted to bring some things to the forefront about how films have always looked at homosexuality or sexual identity. And these two are fucking great. Yeah. You know what, what I really like about these two in particular is that they're they're kind of so they're older films. I mean, mm-hmm. you could definitely say that for your film, but even my film. Late nineties was not was a long time ago now. That was a long time. Ago. <laughs> <laughs> scary, but um, they both are kind of in interesting moments in gay culture. So like the eighties and the late nineties, and you know, di- but both still pretty different from modern times and how modern films and TV and entertainment address gayness or what have you, and so. I don't know. It's going to be interesting. And I also think, too, like, your film is working on so many different levels, too. And yeah. I, I've seen it, you know, a few times. But this time, when I rewatched it, it really was, like, shocking to me, like, how many different topics are brought up. So not just sexuality, but, like, class and, mm-hmm. you know, immigration status and, you know, race. I mean, it's... Fantastic. I, I like th- these two movies are really fun and I can't wait yeah. to talk about them. They're very fun to put in conversation with each other. And I think I was also thinking a lot about when I was watching these both, which, which, you know, I watched as a, a double feature kind of back to back. And I was thinking not only how far we've come in America, which even though we still have long way to go, um, I like where the conversation is now compared to where it was. Like, I think that yeah. there's more interesting shit happening, more, you know, people finding space And I love that. But I also think that it's good to remember that, I don't know, I just, I kind of feel like it's good to remember that gay rights in this country in particular have only ever really been focused, or in the early days, were only really focused on one type of (laughs) queerness. Yeah. So again, like, I just really like that the reminder that we've come at least some distance and that you know, I was raised in a in a in a family that was very open and positive. Um, my mom had gay friends, and my grandparents had gay friends. Like literally, everyone in my life had someone who was gay, and either whether they were out or not, um, you know, we were family friends and close enough to know that. Mm-hmm. And so I've seen, I've just seen this expression of love kind of grow over the years, and I I just really, I'm happy for the people in my life who never had to struggle with that, like the younger people in my life um, and have always been able to find space. But I'm also really happy to kind of revisit a time when it wasn't easy for people to just be who they were. And I think it's okay to to look at these movies as a way to (laughs) explore it. There's something I want to say about my movie, but I want to save it for my movie. But basically, you know, we don't always have to mire stories about queerness in it being destructive or sad. And I just really like that. (sighs) Well, you feel like getting into them then? Of course I do. Okay. 
Am I going first? Yeah. Oh. Why do you think I'm so excited? Oh, God. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> well, my film for the theme of Pride Month is a movie from 1999. It was written by Brian Wayne Peterson and directed by Jamie Babbitt. It's called But I'm a Cheerleader. I'm not perverted. I get good grades. I go to church. I'm a cheerleader. I don't know about you. I I remember when this movie came out and I watched it like six times in a row. Um, I saw it at the movie theater. In fact, I know exactly the movie theater I saw it at. I saw saw it at the Plaza Theater in Atlanta, Georgia, all six times. Um, So (laughs) (laughs) thank you, Plaza. (laughs) The Plaza knew me by name. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They were like, why is this girl here to see this movie again? Um, But... um, so this is the first film by the director, Jamie Babbitt. Um, she has directed lots of things, short films, features, a lot of great TV shows. She directed episodes of the Gilmore Girls, the L Word, Silicon Valley, Russian Doll, etc. So still out here, still working. We love it. Um, so right off the bat, like one of my favorite things about this movie is the style of it. I mean, obviously yes. it's so super fun. Um, bright colorful kind of like a send-up of like the 50s and 60s right yes it's so saturated with color that makes everything more absurd and fun yeah oh my god i love it and i and i actually read that uh the director jamie babbitt said that it's specifically inspired by john waters barbie and edward scissorhands which hello Incredible mashup what a what a <laughs> What a great deep bench of inspiration. Um, yes. So a synopsis of the film is coming at you. A popular high school cheerleader is given an intervention and sent to a residential gay conversion home by her homophobic parents who hope that she will be cured of her lesbianism. Beautiful one sentence. Yeah. So... Just to get into it a little bit, the popular cheerleader of this film is played by Natasha Leone, which I love playing against type, mm-hmm. I would say, wouldn't you say? Yes. Oh, even her voice in this film like is intentionally different. Yeah. I love that she's playing this cheerleader. It's so <laughs> it's so fun. Um and also her parents her homophobe parents are brilliantly casted because they're played by Ugh. Mink Stoll and Bud Court. Can you get any better than that? I mean, it's so be- it was it still every time I see them pop on screen, and I've seen this movie a lot. It still makes me so happy. Yeah, so fun. So at the beginning of this film, Megan, who is the Natasha Leone character, she's introduced as this all-American girl, blonde cheerleader a good Christian. She's got a boyfriend who's the head of the football team. All that stuff, right? But all signs are pointing to her being, shall we say, just a little different, (laughs) right? And this is something that the movie underscores. Um, Sort of the ridiculousness of gay stereotypes and Mm -hmm. like traditional gender roles, right? And in fact, it's weird. I think a lot of comedy in the late 90s was about this from gay filmmakers, especially. I think we talked about this when we mm-hmm. talked about the opposite of sex. So here's the thing. Everyone in Megan's life 
thinks that she might be a lesbian. And here here are the reasons why. Again, <laughs> to talk to talk about like these really ridiculous stereotypes. These reasons send me every send me. time. <laughs> Number one, she hates kissing her boyfriend, which to her credit, he is a gross nightmare kisser. It's awful. <laughs> like I truly feel sorry for her in that moment when she's, I mean, this guy is literally all tongue all over the face. uh, And she's just like staring off into the middle distance. Like (laughs) someone kill me right now. This guy's terrible. But also in that moment where you're too young to know that it's okay to tell someone they're a bad kisser or like ask them to not assault you with their fucking tongue. Well, and that's the thing is that there's a moment, there's a moment in the movie where I think she does go, but maybe it's just because he's not doing it right. So, you know, she's mm-hmm. having that moment of processing where she's like, I don't like kissing this guy. Is it because he doesn't know how to kiss me or is it because I don't like kissing the guy? You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Which is which is interesting. That's an interesting sort of um, thought to have come across in a film. But so, he, so she hates kissing her boyfriend, number one. Number two, she has a picture of a woman in a bikini hanging in her locker, which I don't know. At first, I'm like, I don't know. Is that a big deal? But who knows, right? I guess I guess in high school in the, in the 90s. Well, that's her argument, too, though. And if you think about it, someone who's athletic and who's, you know, it's not that weird. But yes. she's, I like that it's presented in this murkier way. Yes. Because this is a film where she's not declaring her own sexuality. She is saying, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm straight. And I just happen to love looking at women's bodies. And yeah. like, so it's very interesting that it's presented in a murkier sense. Yeah. Um. Because in the beginning, you're kind of like, wait, where are they going with this? Like, what are, what are, what are they trying to say about her that makes her makes them think that she's she's gay? And it's all based on stereotypes. Sure. And and I think, too, in the in this era, I think it wasn't as nuanced as we see it now. Right. Yes. Like there wasn't this sort of like, well, who cares if she likes looking at women? Who cares? You know, it's like I think it was a little bit more um, of a of a binary scenario, right? Yes. So so she's got a woman in her locker. Then this is where it's getting into funny territory. She's a vegetarian, which is like <laughs> her mom says, you tried to make us eat tofu. I <laughs> fucking lose it. <laughs> and then they hide this like plastic bag of tofu like they found like cocaine. Like they're just like, we found this, you know? And also back then it's like I love the whole idea that being a, a vegetarian meant you were like some weird hippie meant meaning that you were gay. Like, okay. <laughs> it was never a good connotation back right. in the day. <laughs> and then of course the last be- maybe the biggest indictment. She loves Melissa Etheridge, which <laughs> Holy know. shit. What? Also, what are you going to say about that? Can you uh, can, I I know that you can remember. I would like for everyone younger than 20 to imagine a time when people did not know Melissa Etheridge was gay. (laughs) So like (laughs) the revelation even of her being gay was a pop cultural explosion. God, there, there are so many, like, like when people didn't know Liberace was gay. I mean, come on, we can go down this road (laughs) forever. (laughs) Like people's grandma's been out here being like, no, we're going to get married. I'm like, are you joking right now? Look, I have a family friend. Of course, I call her my aunt because we're black. Um, obsessed with George, like genuinely thought she was going to marry George Michael one day. 
Yeah. And when he came out, I think it ruined her life a little bit. <laughs> I mean, not because she's homophobic, but because she's like, oh, I have literally no chance yes, at all. Exactly. You know, I got to say, I might have thought that, too. When I, <laughs> when Faith came out, I was like, wow, like he's the hottest guy I've ever seen. And I'm like, oh, wait, he's not. He doesn't like women. OK, well, Still that's hot, a bummer. No like, chance. <laughs> you know, no chance. Not that I even if it was straight, like I had had a chance with him. Come on gorgeous george that's the best part george michael in a fucking everything she wants video and you're like he's cute and then you're like i genuinely can't he, he will never care <laughs> i will it will never care life ruining okay so um so, so there's all these little all this little checklist thing is happening with megan so one day she comes home from school and her friends and family are in the living room and they're with this strange man a guy named mike who uh is from a place called True Directions. And Mike is played by RuPaul, who is out of drag in this film. And he's playing this like butch coach guy <laughs> to the best of his ability, by the way. Oh, please. Like, <laughs> oh um, my God, I love this moment. I loved this moment. I just yeah. love seeing him being in this living room, being like talking about things that he is in his real life as an entertainer been condemning. So it's kind of like, it's a send up. Like he's definitely yes. doing this role as a send up and it works out perfectly. And I, and I also will take this moment to mention, um, I'm technically related to RuPaul, not in the black art way. <laughs> what? His first cousin married my first cousin. What? Yeah. And I've, so like, I've, I've never met RuPaul, but if I ever did, I'd be like, What's up? We okay. fam. What about the family reunion shirts? Come on. You got to get something going. Yeah, look, I'm looking for the Charles. The Charles side of the family's got to get it popping because the Henderson side of the family is not <laughs> doing shit. <laughs> we're, not, we're not organizing this barbecue. <laughs> fuck that. What the fuck? That's a lot of work. Too much. Like, oh, we got to feed other people? Fuck it. <laughs> uh-uh. That's like my family, too. They don't want to get together with fucking anybody. So... <laughs> loner families <laughs> <laughs> these fucking families of ours oh my god but um so here's the thing basically megan gets sent to true directions which is this like gay conversion therapy facility like i said it's run by this small group of ex-gays quote-unquote it's what they call themselves including mike and also headed up by this woman named mary who is played by Kathy Moriarty, who I fucking love. Beautifully cast yet again. The best. So Megan gets there, right? And she meets all the other residents who are also these young people kind of around her age. And it's a vast assortment of people from like all races, genders, all walks of life, which was actually intended by the director from what I read. She wanted Mm. to make sure that there was like an Asian person and a latino person and a you know a jewish person so it was kind of cool but they're all kind of in various stages of their treatment and one of the girls i have to say is played by i saw what you did favorite melanie linsky oh tiny baby melanie linsky and she is so adorable in this movie and hilarious so cute also mary's son (laughs) (laughs) We gotta talk about Mary's son. Rock. Mar- Rock, by the way. So, like, I was gonna say, he, it, it, what is really funny and 
uh, is a nice touch about this film is that Mary's son, who, by the way, is played by Eddie Cibrian. So for all you Real Housewives people, you might know him. <laughs> um, but he is the gardener and kind of the groundskeeper for the facility, which, again, if you heard us talk about All That Heaven Allows, his name is Rock. I mean, come on. That's obviously a nod to that, right? Well, I'll just say this about everybody. Okay, I don't have to tell you this, but in this film, everybody's in this facility and everyone, including the staff, are having much difficulty with pretending to be straight. Okay? Yes. Duh. Um, There are people who are outright sneaking out of the facility, sneaking off to make out and have sex. They're having sexual fantasies about each other, including Mike, who is watching Rock, like, do suggestive things with, like... The handle of a shovel, basically. Mike and Rock are flirting nonstop <laughs> while Mike is actively, like, trying to teach people how to be straight by, like, cutting wood with an axe and bullshit like that. Right. And, and I mean, and we know that this is a fucking farce, right? I mean, obviously, uh, it's a comedy. But, you know, one of the more rebellious and I would say saltier residents is this lesbian named Graham who was played by the one and only Clea Duvall, She's the one in the facility that's like, yo, this is bullshit, right? She's got, like, no time for the bullshit. But also, she's the daughter of this, like, really rich, scary, white motherfucker. And, you know, so she's got a lot going on in her life, right? Um, yeah, she's being deeply oppressed because her whole livelihood depends on her pretending to be straight. Yes. So that her father will, like, continue to support her support her in, in any way and it's also like the crux of his love for her is that she has to be straight thing about the film is that a lot of comedy is coming from this idea that these people are taking these ludicrous over-the-top steps to become a straight person okay mm -hmm. which is totally informed by these really over-the-top like gender stereotypes of course um and part of it, like the initial um, part of the treatment is that they have to figure out what their root or like root cause of their queerness oh is, right? And they go around the room saying what it is and it cracks me up. Every time. Uh, Graham says that the reason why she is gay is because she saw her mother get married in pants. That is the one that I lose it every time. <laughs> <laughs> and another oh, girl God. says that she was simply born in France, which is why <laughs> why she might be gay. That cracks me up so much. But I mean, as you can imagine, the days go by and Megan and Graham start getting closer and closer, right? Because Megan's the all-American cheerleader girl. Graham's the kind of salty, you know, riot girl-esque you know, bad girl, quote unquote, in the facility. And over time, they kind of fall for each other. And um, they end up like sneaking out one night with these two former patients of True Directions, one of whom is Richard Maul, who, pl who played Bull from Night Court. A I mean, God the casting me. of this film should have received an Oscar. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. There's so many great, I mean, not just the people, the principal characters, but there's so many great cameos in it. I mean, it's like Julie Delphi's in it. Ione Sky makes an appearance. Fucking Michelle Williams plays yes. like one of like Megan's friends from her high school. I mean, it's kind of amazing. 
So these two guys are covertly like taking these kids out of the facility and bringing them into the city to go to this gay bar, the the town gay bar called the Cocksucker, of course. Um, I love so much about this moment, but especially when Megan is kind of like, oh, so they run like an underground gay railroad. (laughs) (laughs) They're sneaking us out. Yeah. And so and so at that point, it, it gets a lot more complicated from this point of the film because Megan is actually starting to come into her own as an out lesbian. Right. Mm-hmm. And she wants this romance with Graham. Like you said, though, Graham's got this pressure from her family to graduate. And but the crux of their love story is very sweet. And, you know, there are moments where they have like really beautiful intimacy and like they're just you know it's like two young women who are put in this awful place and they're just trying to like live basically and i love Mm -hmm. that the movie is about that and it is a sweet love story between them um but you know from like i said from that point on from like uh from when they sneak out it becomes you know all hell breaks loose as you know as we like to say (laughs) in this podcast and I won't give it away, but I love this film. I mean, I feel like it is a fun, a really fun comedic look at the absurdity of gay conversion and just like those mm-hmm. tired stereotypes of sexuality and gender. Um, you know, all that stuff was kind of front of mind in 99. And so, and from like today's perspective, it's a little like, again, it's a, it's not as nuanced maybe, but it was, it's a fun film. It has a great, soundtrack by the way because mm-hmm. let me tell you in 99 that was my big twee pop year so i loved dressy bessie and april march and ghost sailor i had all those albums on repeat i still love them and yeah i mean it was it's just i loved this movie so much when i saw it because it like it just felt like this really fun breath of fresh air, but it was also kind of talking about all these other topics. And mm-hmm. I don't know, the world that it created was so fun to watch. And yeah, I, I think it's it's a great film. And I think I agree. I agree. And I think what what's cool about this movie is there's a moment where you realize, because Megan and, and Graham are talking, that it hinted at something that was yet to come, but it was kind of planting a seed, which is, there is not just one way to be gay. And I think that the guys who took them to cocksucker (laughs) were also (laughs) saying the same thing that like you, at one point they say to Megan, you know, you just have to be who you are. Cause she's like, I don't know how to be a lesbian. And they're like, well, you just are. So (laughs) because she's like, can you teach me how to dress and live like a lesbian? And they're like, "Mm, honey, no. First step is (laughs) understanding that you just are. And I really like that, you know, she's not, she likes being a cheerleader and Graham likes being salty and they just like who they are Yeah, beyond their sexuality. They just like who they are. And so I think that these are just two teenagers who are realizing there's not one way to be anything in this world. And I can just go out there and be myself. And this is a movie that I think isn't, it's not, it's not supposed to have messages because there's just one overall intensive message, which is like gay conversion therapy is fucking a crime and <laughs> that yeah. you know stereotypes fuck us all up um yes. but i think that th- with that, that little message within there is always really a very crucial part of this film to me and i i love it it's just it's just it's a fun strange film that 
I, I don't I can't believe there are people who haven't seen it but if you haven't please watch it yeah, I think that over the... So, you know, I think it got kind of caught up in that whole, like, indie movie thing in the 90s. Mm-hmm. But I feel like it's become sort of a cult classic at this point. Like, it played at the New Beverly in L.A. recently. And I know that, um, you know, people are talking about it more as being sort of a cult film because it has that sort of vibe. It has yeah. a John Waters, uh, Tim Burton-esque... I mean, I won't say it's a Tim Burton film. It's not gothic or anything, but it's that... You know, that kind of like um, fake 50s reality type of thing where you're mm-hmm. like, oh, my God, like it, it really plays up the notions of like that 50s monoculture thing. It's great. Like, I, I love the costumes. I love the weird shit like in the house where they have to wear blue and pink all the time. And it's like and it's like that plasticky kind of fabric. <laughs> like oh my god this it, it it almost feels like a uh, old film strip in that way where uh the last so the final uh thing that they have to do to graduate is to like simulate straight sex oh and god. the boys are they're all wearing these like nude body suits with like the leaves over the the uh, private parts and I'm like that is so fucking weird it's like watching like an old film strip about sexuality from when you were like in middle school yeah you know? yes oh god it's so bonkers it's it's yeah. cr- I love that you picked this movie it's fantastic yeah definitely fun to watch and uh yeah so what about your film this week well, my movie as we move into celebrating officially celebrating pride weekend this coming weekend, Mm -hmm. um, but it has been Pride Month all month. Um, My film was released in 1985. It was directed by Stephen Frears, and the screenplay is by Hanif Qureshi. And my film is My Beautiful Laundrette. It'll be going into profit any day now, partly because I've hired a bloke of astounding competence and strength of body and mind to look after me. I love this movie. How long has it been since you've seen this? Or when do you think the last time was that you saw this? Oh, it's, it's actually been pretty recently. I would say probably oh. in the last um, four or five years. Nice. I watched it when we I, I used to work on this, uh, uh, this application called Filmstruck. <laughs> and I remember we added this film to Filmstruck and um, I watched it then. And that was probably about four five years ago so oh my goodness i love that i haven't i haven't seen it in a while it's been like over 10 years since i saw it wow so i was very psyched to revisit um i this is again one of those films that just stays with you it has stayed with me through time (laughs) Mm -hmm. and um i think that you know i'll talk a little bit about why i chose it later on but um it's just a different kind of film and I think that because it was released in 85, it's talking about a different time that people often either view one particular way and completely remove the narrative of sexuality from, or they just forget. And so I thought it was kind of interesting to see, you know, again, where we've come from uh, in, ter- in terms of how we celebrate ourselves. Mm-hmm. And my one sentence synopsis of this movie is... Living in Thatcher-era England was so fucking stressful, people didn't even have time to consider their sexuality. Very true. Very true. So this cast is fantastic. 
speak. Yes. Um, this is the movie that gave us Daniel Day Lewis for better, you know, for all intents and purposes. Um, mm-hmm. This is before Room with a View and before, you know, all the other movies that he went on to do. And uh, Daniel Day Lewis plays Johnny, who's kind of this this street thug squatter. Uh, and he's one of the main characters. And the other main character is Omar, who's played by Gordon Warnecke. And um, we're just kind of like we get into the lives of both of them through their relationship. But we're mostly focusing on Omar. Like he's the primary character in this film. And it's even for that time period, this was kind of a, a revolutionary move because there were not many films focusing on young Pakistani people mm-hmm. um, at all, but especially young gay or queer Pakistani men. Right. So Omar is living in South London. He's trying to find his way in the world. As the movie progresses, we find out that his mother has died by suicide. Uh, and his father, Hussein, has kind of just like taken to bed and decided to never leave. <laughs> and we, again, as the movie progresses, we kind of understand a little more why. But in the meantime, Omar's kind of caring for this father who's not ailing, but is ill in some way, whether it be, you know, mentally, emotionally, he's just kind of done. Um, yeah, he's definitely like the king of the misanthropes. He's just like, yes. I'm over it. Uh, and I'm just going to chill here. <laughs> and I love <laughs> what I love, too, about rewatching this movie is, you know, kind of looking up um, different facts. And Rashan Seth, who plays Papa Hussein, was only like in his 40s when he played that role. And he looks ancient. And like, he looks like a withered old vine when he's playing this <laughs> role. And you're like, wait, he was only like 40 something? Yeah, right. But he he plays that, that misanthropic role to a fucking T. And he has this brother, Nasser, um, who's Omar's uncle. And so Nasser decides to kind of get Omar started in life because he's living on the dole and um, doesn't quite know what he wants what he wants to do or where he wants to go. So Nasser, who's been pretty successful, um, starts by hiring Omar to work in his parking garage. And then he kind of gives him this rundown laundrette uh, to run because Omar's like, I want to do more than just, you know, we're all, like working in this parking garage and washing cars occasionally is fine. Um, but I have a feeling that I want to do something else. So this whole setup of the film is kind of like you're learning the dynamics of Omar's family. And one night on the way home from a really weird family party, Omar and his family kind of get attacked in their car by this group of like fascist white thugs. And they don't get physically attacked, but they're like, you know, kind of banging on the car and just being very menacing. Mm-hmm. And instead of shying away from that scene and, you know, speeding away, Omar does something very strange, which is he opens the car door and marches directly up to Johnny, who's played by Daniel Day-Lewis, and kind of happily tells him that they should get back in touch. And you're like, wait a minute, what is happening here? Yeah. So... What we learn is that we're meeting both Omar and Johnny at pivotal points in their lives where they both want to change. And like you said earlier, this movie is as much about race and class issues as it is about sexuality. So Johnny and Omar grew up together and Hussein kind of used to teach Johnny and all the kids in the neighborhood about life. But then, like a lot of people in this time period, Johnny grew up to be kind of a fascist and... And then it's slowly revealed that he and Omar used to be lovers. 
And mm. so you're kind of learning like, wow, how does someone go from having a Pakistani lover to being a fucking fascist in this era? But you kind of, you know, Omar is such a, he's such a lovable character. He's so like bright and and fun and funny. And he's trying to help Johnny. So he brings him he kind of brings him on as a partner in this laundrette, mm-hmm. which is really weird for Johnny because he starts getting more mixed up in the family affairs and he's sort of having his life changed by the very kind of people he once purported to hate. Yeah. Um, which is deep for him. And at the beginning of the film, for example, like we see Johnny getting kicked out of his squat. But then later in the film, once he starts working for Nasser. He becomes the one who's booting people out of their squats. And then Nasser kind of gives Johnny the room of this poet that he kicked out. So he's really having a lot of internal struggles about like, who am I? Who am I going to become? What is happening to me? Right. Um, And then it's also revealed that, you know, again, Hussein used to kind of help all of these boys. They were just friends growing up. And there was a pivotal moment where he saw all of those same boys grow up and start taking part in these anti-immigration marches. Right. And Omar says, you know, dad was really afraid and he took it out on mom, which hints to like, that's the reason she died by suicide. Um, but it also gives you a deeper understanding of why Hussein just kind of gave up. Right. So he's looking at this world and kind of saying like, what the fuck? Yeah, that's always so, so the brothers are like mm-hmm. so, so interesting to me. Because you clearly have one who sort of, so they're both immigrants, obviously. And that's a huge part of the story for me is the idea of, you know, people immigrating from countries and and coming here to, you know, live the dream or the, you know, basically participate in this like, um, you know, Western economy or whatever. And, you know, one of the brothers is, wants the success wants that like money and power and um the other is more of an intellectual and wants Mm -hmm. to like instead realizing that he he doesn't want to be like a capitalist he wants to be uh somebody who's kind of more of an activist or wants to kind of dismantle that that system Mm -hmm. a little bit but he's not really doing it currently he's just kind of sitting in his house being misanthropic and drinking all the time yeah and I think that that is like an interesting, um, you know, sort of binary to see like at least Omar's story because he could either be that or this, right? Because that's the model yes. for him. Completely. And that is something that like, you know, these these two brothers, because this is a movie about immigration and brothers and family and one who has succeeded within the system and one who effectively kind of failed or gave up. Yeah. But they're both trying to live in this world that doesn't really want them there. Yes. And so... I think part of Hussein's disillusion is that he doesn't, he wants his son to be like him. He wants his son to go back to college and kind of live the life of an intellectual. Right. And he, he, there's this one point where he's talking to Johnny and he's like, I don't want my, my son to be an underwear washer. Um, so he kind of feels that tension of like, we didn't move here for him to be this. Right. I wanted my son to have a, a different life. And um, he can't understand that, Omar is both pursuing this life because it is interesting to him and that there is value there to be had. You know, he kind of sees it as still a lower, lower level way of living. Right. And part of his like, you know, his 
feeling of, you know, ah, fuck it and giving up. Like there's there's a toenail cutting scene in this movie that will ruin your life. (laughs) But it also just showcases how much he's given up. It is a (laughs) life ruining toenail cutting scene. Yes. And so you've got this one dynamic of this guy being like, I just I don't fucking care. Um, But then Nasser is like, there's always money and muck. And basically, like, you know, we should try to exist here, even though this place fucking blows. Like, we should try to get from it what we came here to take out of it. Um, So I like that Omar is he's not afraid to lean into the dynamic, but he's clearly disobeying his father's wishes or he's clearly not the son that his father wanted him to have on top of the fact that both Hussein and Nasser are constantly trying to get him married off, so to speak. Um, And the way that they've decided to do it is by hooking him up with his first cousin, Tanya. And I kind of wish they showed more of her story because as much as Omar felt like the racism and the immigration issues and the class issues, Tanya felt all of that while also being a woman. And so it's kind of presented as if like, well, she's her father is wealthy, so she's fine. But her father's wealth did not protect her. Like she still felt stifled and unheard. And her father's money didn't raise the family's estimation in the eyes of white people. So she still kind of reached this place where she felt like her sexuality was a way to transcend the struggle, by which I mean like using her sexuality to kind of transcend the struggle. Right. But Then there's a moment at the end of the film that something different with her happens and you're kind of like, huh, I get why she got there, but I just wish I knew a little bit more about her story. God, me too. I, Because she's a real dynamic character in this film. And yeah, I wish that that had gotten fleshed out more. And I know that there's so, I mean, this movie is so textured. There's a lot of things happening, but I'm like, I want to see like Tanya's story like a little bit i want like is she feminist is she you know what what is like she's trying to obviously get away from her father and um you know she's got a lot of complications with her father because of you know sort of his ways and the way that he lives his life um and her mother because her mother bill bill Quee is out here like making potions with mice and burning her husband's mistress (laughs) like yes and that to me is also another commentary on the sort of like the capitalist uh goals maybe of like immigrants where they're like you know look at my old world wife who is out here making potions and i you know instead i'm gonna go out with my mistress who's this you know white lady who's real fabulous and she's wearing furs and we're going out on the town so it's that thing of like there's just a lot going on uh with that with those storylines that are just very fascinating to me I agree. And it's and when when Omar starts working at the parking garage, I think his eyes are opened up to all of those different yes. layers of the world that he maybe was not privy to before. So he does discover that that Nasser is having this affair with Rachel um, and that, you know, his family's trying to set him up with his first cousin. But he and Johnny are kind of re- they're rekindling their relationship. Mm-hmm. And there's this really what I think if there was a pivotal scene in this movie that is commented on the most, it's when Omar gives Paige Johnny for the first time and Johnny kind of gets close to him and then licks his neck. Yep. And I read somewhere that I believe it was Stephen Frears who told Daniel Day-Lewis to improvise that part because he wanted to see what <laughs> <laughs> what the actor playing Omar would do. He wanted to see what Gordon Warnecke would do. Um, so it's a really sweet scene. And again, 
gave us Daniel Day-Lewis, possibly that was the origin of him being a method actor. Who knows? Yeah, he, <laughs> he is, for a fascist, he is damn cute, unfortunately. For a fascist! <laughs> for, for a uh, British 80s um, Lonsdale hoodie wearing, like, you know, kind of fascist guy, fascist street punk. He's damn cute. And I gotta say, like, that part that you're talking about, which is talked about obviously a lot, it's so, it's such a little breath of fresh air. It's really cheeky. And part of it is that his fascist buddies are standing right there. Yep. And he's being a little provocative in that moment where he's basically like giving a little wink to Omar and being like, well, I'm about to go out with my friends, but here's a, here's a little lick before I leave. And it's just like that. It's a very, very, um, I mean, I get flustered when I see that. I'm like, oh. <laughs> like, well, because there's, this is, and this is something that's important because it's something that I love about this movie is that it doesn't make sexuality a problem. Like, they're, the problems that Omar and Johnny have are have nothing to do with the fact that they're gay. Yes. It's more about that they live in this, like, divided, racist nation that keeps pulling people apart more than it unites them. Yep. So... The, I love that their relationship is something they take solace in and it does yes. breathe fresh air into the film. And every time they're together, you see this real like just magnetic love between them. And there's like there there's a really cool scene, for example, when they they redo the laundrette, which actually comes out looking pretty fucking tight. Yes. And they're in the office and in the new office, they have a two two way mirror. So there, there's this one scene where. Omar and Johnny are fucking in the office and Nasir and Rachel are like dancing in the laundry. Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of this like two-way forbidden love sort of scene. Yes. And yes. it's just beautiful. It's just beautiful. And so I do like, I love that they take solace in, in that, that love. Yeah, no, that is exactly the way that I read it too. Like just the whole like idea that all of the forces around them the racism, the capitalism, the weird, you know, sort of social conditions of 80s Britain is is hard for them. And it makes it makes this whole like the the fact that they're business partners and all that stuff and friends um, really complicated. But the fact that they're just sort of their relationship is pure and is like a, a shelter from all that is lovely to me. So it's beautiful and again this is 1985 it's 1985 like who expected yes that moment to be represented in film so so eloquently yeah um, especially because the other thing i noticed watching it this time which i i think i've probably noticed the other you know few times i've seen it but um there was something that just really stood out to me this time which is that there is a a white menace to this movie so there are always these fascist white thugs lurking in the background, which makes every part of this movie so unsettling. Yeah. And they hate that Johnny has kind of defected, quote unquote. Yeah. But they also hate anyone who's not white. And it's just it's just a real menace that, you know, they're kind of prov provocative. They really provoke people um, without being outwardly physically harmful. Yeah. And so it's it's a it's a weird it's weird for me because, again, I can't believe that something that came out in 1985 still resonates so deeply with what we're living in now. Yeah. Like the fact that, you know, it is 
an act of terror to make people feel like they can't go to the grocery store. You know, the terrorism is not that I can't own a gun. It's that I don't feel safe shopping. That's real terror. And so in this film, to have them showcase that and the subtleties of that, which is like, even as they're building this laundrette, and at one point, you know, one of Johnny's former friends kind of throws a garbage can through the window and breaks the window. Mm -hmm. And they just kind of carry on like, yeah, we expected that to happen. But the menace never leaves. Yeah. It never leaves. And so don't want to ruin the end of the film too much. But again, like, I think that this whole movie to me, it's important that it was so indicative of a specific time. But what I like to see more of is these films where being gay is something to celebrate, something to take solace in, and something that feels like real life. Like it didn't feel like they were struggling to understand their feelings for each other. They were just like, this is our relationship. This is how it's always been with us. We've always connected. Um, And it's just really beautiful to see. And Daniel Day-Lewis is incredible in this movie. Again, Gordon Wernicke is incredible in this film. So many great actors. Um, And it's also worth saying that the, you know, the person who wrote this film, Hanif Karaishi, he was born in South London. And he he's identifies as, as bisexual um and he started his career in the 70s as a as a porn right he wrote porn <laughs> like under certain pseudonyms but he had a novel that came out in 1998 called intimacy and um it's this kind of story of of a man leaving his wife and his his sons and you know he's kind of been rejected by his wife and this is all by the way coming from wikipedia and um his family was really fucking pissed at him. Like it was kind of a controversial moment for him to have he, that he's continued to write such personal stories on a public stage. Um, He's had some moments where his family has been really upset with how he represents his life. Um, Mm. But he's, you know, he's really well, just well revered and necessarily well revered. Um, He's gone on to teach at like, you know, Kingston university and, and he's just really an interesting and cool filmmaker. And I think that I just, you know, it just made me kind of, he's won tons of awards. And I don't know, I just think that the fact that he is able to be so autobiographical, but also presenting us with stories that just feel very real um, in the kind of cinematic sense, it's just, it's just really important. I think that he's, he's someone that I don't want to be forgotten. I love that. Again, bringing bringing people to front and center that maybe people don't know much about. I mean, you know, obviously Daniel Day-Lewis, he's very famous. Stephen Frears is a very famous mm. Hollywood director at this point. But I love that you were able to, you know, talk about the writer of the film. Because it's honestly just such a beautiful film. And I feel like it's so textured. There's so many, like, deep issues that are being processed in this film but that you're right there's a sensualness of their relationship of omar and johnny's relationship that i feel like is very pure and wonderful in spite of like all this other bullshit that's happening in their lives you know um and it's hard because i feel like with especially in in this time um i mean you have a mixed race couple who um you know, has obviously had that, you know, there's a part of the film where Omar talks about how, you know, Johnny and his friends used to like bully him, you know, when he was Mm -hmm. uh, a kid. And, 
you know, obviously there's been kind of an evolution of that relationship, but it is that thing where you're like, it, it's just incredibly hard for, you know, people who are immigrants and people who are not white to exist in this, you know, culture, this capitalist uh, modern society where, you know, basically they feel that um, having money is power over people. Mm -hmm. And just watching a character like Omar try to navigate that, but still wanting this relationship, but still wanting to be with Johnny at the same time, I just think it's really interesting and textured. And um, every time I watch this movie, I like it more. Yeah. I don't know why. I just am like, wow. It's like every time I find something new to like marinate on, you know? Yes. I know. Like for this time for me, it was, it was Tanya a little bit, but also what you were just saying, which is that I think it's really remarkable to have a film that, that focuses on and does not shy away from the fact that Omar has said like, you know, I've been navigating these waters for a long fucking time where I have to both exist next to uh, you know, these people who hate me and actively tell and tease me and actively try to bully me. Um, but I also love one of them. And I yeah. also am just a person trying to like be a guy. Like I'm just trying to like find love and yes. be myself and be successful. Or, you know, he he's he's really exploring it without shying away from the other, which I think is is also very important um, and yeah. can only come from a filmmaker who's or a writer, at least, who's who's experienced that a little bit. Yeah. Um, and it's and it's beautiful. Like it's beautiful to see also this side of a gay relationship that comes from the perspective of <laughs> the brown person. Yes. Not to be so crude, but yeah, no, no. like it's really nice to see this come from the perspective of someone who's not white. Because I think a lot of um, you know, a lot of gay films and and TV shows are often or at least used to be from the perspective of only white people. Yes. Wonderful pick. Ahead of its time. Ahead of its time. Agreed. Agreed. I I love the films this week. Um, have seen both multiple times, and I, I like them more each time. And um, happy Pride, everybody. Hopefully, um, you've either seen these films, or maybe now you have a curiosity to see these films. We hope you watch them, because they're awesome. What a great weekend to watch them if you haven't. Yes. Well, Danielle, let's talk about our next episode. Do you want to tell them about the films? (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we're going to have to come up with a different way to talk about guessing the theme now that our episodes come out a week early on if you're a Wondery Plus subscriber. Yeah. So if you are a Wondery Plus subscriber, you can already listen to this episode. Hey. Um, But if you're not, our movies for next week when it's released wide is Mr. Mom from 1983 and Three Men and a Baby from 1987. And let me tell you, this theme is not what you think it is. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. um, Wow. These two together. (laughs) It's going to, it's going to be a thing. I, I, I can't wait. It's going to be fun. Um, But listen, if you would like to email us for any reason, please do so. We're at I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. Uh, we, we say this every week, but we really truly mean it. 
If you have questions for our bonus episodes, a lot of times we use the bonus episodes to answer viewer mail. So if you write in, it usually means that we will read it and we will answer it. And just a little pro tip, if it, the more concise and it's it just it's just easier, I think, for us to um, navigate the emails. Uh, direct questions are great. So we love mm-hmm. hearing stories, but you know, don't make it a novel. Unfortunately, we're we're two women with multiple jobs, so we're trying <laughs> we're trying our best to keep up with the mail. Um, but we would love for you guys to write in and tell us about film stories, watching movies with family and friends and lovers. And if you've worked at movie theaters and um, video stores, please divulge all that information. I saw what you did, pot at Gmail. And according to one of our more recent bonus episodes, uh, which I believe the title was Marryable Meat, uh, <laughs> send us your fuck, Mary kill suggestions. And if you don't know why, listen to that episode. Oh my god. I forgot we like how did I forget? Because honestly, it was like we really processed that. We were like, <laughs> I was doing real brain work on that one. I was learning some shit. I was learning <laughs> some shit. I had unknown, I had I had a lack of knowledge about a particular person, and it ruined my whole thought process of what I thought what I was very secure about. But it's worth it to listen to that episode and send us your your fuck Mary kills. Yes. Um, and we have some, we have a PO box. So if you want to send us handwritten letters, um, you can find our PO box uh, on our link tree on Instagram. Um, if you can figure out a way to send an edible arrangement to a PO box, <laughs> that is also from one of our bonus episodes. But if you if you know you know, um, <laughs> and you can find us on our socials at I Saw Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and please. Send us a, write us a review. Give us a five star. If you like us, it helps more than you know. It helps people find our podcast. It helps people recognize our podcast. Um, And, you know, tell some friends to follow us and then tell them to leave five star reviews. (laughs) Yes. And finally, if you want merch, we have it. It's there for you. Uh, We have t shirts. You can cut the sleeves off and, you know, go work in the yard. And do like a suggestive J-O movement with your, Any, with, you know, <laughs> with the handle of a, of a shovel. Eddie Sibrian walked so that Justin Thoreau could fly. <laughs> Sexy gardeners. No <laughs> Out here with no sleeves, being hot. Yes, that's right. Um, you can alter any of our merch. Uh, but you can find it at the exactly right shop at exactlyrightmedia.com. And I have to say, my book was released in paperback um, this month, and so hardcover copies that are still in the in the store in the exactlyrightmedia.com store that are signed, I ain't doing that anymore. So it's your hey. last chance to get a signed copy of my book, hardcover style, yes. um, unless you see me in public and throw one at me. <laughs> throw books at Danielle when you see her. That's an order. Only mine. Only my books. (laughs) (laughs) I will not take your fucking Bill O'Reilly books coming at me. That is assault. If you throw my own books at me, that's flattery. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that note, Danielle, thank you so much for being such a good friend. Thank you for hearing me out. It was wonderful to cry with you, to laugh with you. I love doing this podcast with you. 
I feel the exact same way. I just really love you. And this was, again, this this episode is so indicative to me and so exemplary of what our, our friendship is, which is, you know, sometimes we're crying, usually we're laughing, and <laughs> most of the time we're talking about movies. Yeah, see you next time. This has been an Exactly Right production. Produced and mixed by Casey O'Brien. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogle. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Daniel Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. And you can email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit ExactlyRightStore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.